It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to Bits and Pieces for February 2024. Here with indie podcaster James and we're going to go through some of the things that caught our eye this month from lots of different places. There's going to be a theme to this month that that keeps recurring and it's to do with behaviour of our politicians and what's, what's acceptable and what isn't. You can let us know what you think about our politicians' behaviour. Either drop a note in the comments or send us an email at indiepodcasters at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from our listeners. We touched last month on the COVID inquiry, still ongoing, only this time the focus was on the Scottish Government's actions. Alistair Jack, the Secretary of State against Scotland, giving evidence which was just nasty, mean-spirited, rude and misogynist, I would say. This is John Nicholson commenting. I was the First Minister when uh, the pandemic struck. There's a large part of me wishes that I hadn't been. Um... Well, Mr Jack was asked about that testimony today and he raised quite a few eyebrows when he said he didn't believe for a minute that Nicola Sturgeon's emotions were genuine. Well, I watched that yesterday and I, I saw that passage and I, don't believe, I didn't believe it for a minute and I thought she could cry from one eye if she wanted to. John Nicholson, let me come to you first. What did you think when you heard that? I thought it was an immense bad taste, Martin, really. I, I thought it was ungentlemanly. I thought it was rude and uncalled for. And I was just struck watching it thinking, you know, here's two men discussing whether Nicholas Sturgeon is crying hard enough to be sincere. I just thought it was grotesque, really, that he chose to to hone in on this. And I think, like most people across the country, of all political persuasions, we just thought that was really bad taste. Mm. Alistair Jack said today, without any particular kind of emo- emotion or sense of terrible regret, he had quite matter-of-factly deleted all of his WhatsApps, the whole lot, to free up some space on his mobile phone. So there's no moral high ground to be had there, is there? I think a lot of it's trial by innuendo. I I think across these islands, a a lot of people, especially public health officials like Chris Whitty and others, really did their best. My mum died in a respite centre. So I'm one of the COVID bereaved. And I understand, of course, people's enormous distress about this. But I think people did their best. I think there's a huge contrast between Nicola Sturgeon, who was there at the podium every day answering questions from journalists, uh, and Boris Johnson, who, you know, at one point, uh, we discover, asked whether or not if he put a hairdryer up his nose, he would get rid of COVID. I, I think most people in Scotland feel that we were well served by a diligent First Minister. I, I think few people would have swapped her response for Boris Johnson. I think John Nicholson's point, I mean, he's right what he says about Alistair Jack. I mean, it just was a, a nasty, low-life kind of comment by, you know, a man who just can't disguise his contempt for anything to do with Scotland. That kind of comment just backfires on the, the Tories because it just it just makes them look heartless and callous. We lost a relative during COVID as well, not of COVID, but during COVID. And I remember that time we used to tune in and listen to the First Minister every day because you felt you were getting straight information such as it was and and she was honest where she couldn't give you information. But it was just, it made you feel as if somebody was in charge and somebody was doing it. And I don't give a shit what she had in her WhatsApp messages at the time. Question time, which is normally stuffed full of Tories in the audience, had a response from an audience member comparing Nicola Sturgeon's performance to the Tory government, which had a former Prime Minister who was heading up a culture of partying, law-breaking, corruption, cronyism and money, and has not submitted a single WhatsApp with the most ridiculous excuses. You've got a current Westminster Prime Minister who also hasn't submitted a single WhatsApp. He can't recall anything. I think it was 30-odd times during this. And I feel that Nicola Sturgeon has been... It's just a witch hunt. I actually think she has stood up for Scotland. I think she did what she could in the most trying situations, and this is absolute political. I think it's a disgrace. That seems more in tune with any public reaction that I've heard. What about you? Yeah. So moving on from COVID to um, the ongoing situation in Gaza, there's been a lot of public uh, demonstrations, big demonstrations that we've covered as a hot topic. There was one in Edinburgh a couple of weeks ago and last weekend, Glasgow, 10,000 people. We had a roving reporter on the street. (laughs) 
in George Square for all the trade unions and general public, everyone interested, joining in. We're going to march down to the SECC shortly, where the Labour Party conference is ongoing, and we've got a demonstration down there as well. Absolute chaotic scenes in Parliament in what was supposed to be the SNP's ceasefire motion, which got hijacked by a Labour motion, which the Speaker for some reason allowed to go forward, uh, even though it should normally be the government who's put a motion against the opposition party. Then at the last minute, the government withdrew their motion, which meant that you could only vote for the Labour one. And if that was passed, that would replace the SNP one in its entirety. There was MPs who wanted to vote for the SNP one. The SNP walked out at one point. I've never seen Stephen Flynn so angry, demanding that the Speaker appear and explain himself, uh, which he did, but not very well. And I would think his coat's on a bit of a sugarly peg. Madam Deputy Speaker, may I firstly begin my point of order by just re-emphasising that we are all here tonight to vote on the civilian deaths in Gaza and the appalling situation that has been faced by nationals in Israel too. We all must remember that. Madam Deputy Speaker, if I have listened correctly to what has just been said, on SNP Opposition Day, <coughs> should the Labour Party's motion be carried, then the SNP's vote will not be held. Secondly, if I have have read the clerk's letter to all members correctly, which was sent to to the Speaker, this was a consequence that he was warned of. So can you please advise me, where on earth is the Speaker of the House of Commons? How do we bring him to this house now to explain to the Scottish National Party why our views and our votes in this house are irrelevant to him? Then there was an extraordinary suggestion by Labour's uh, Chris Bryant that if the government couldn't win on a matter of foreign policy, there should be an immediate general election. And you couldn't help but feel sorry for Tory MP Neil O'Brien, who was now thoroughly confused as to who he could vote for and what the consequences would be. Just, and I, I thank you for taking the point of order, Madam Deputy Speaker. Um, I believe that today the SNP have been treated unfairly. But it's not just the SNP that have been treated unfairly, because those of us who would like to vote for the SNP motion, now if we want to do so, must vote against a Labour Party motion a motion which the Honourable Member for the Rondo just said would lead, if we voted for it, to an immediate general election. So we are being placed in an unfair position if we wish to support the SNP motion. Now, this afternoon we've now seen the exit of the SNP from the Chamber and the exit of many people on this side of the House too. We're clearly in an intolerable situation and it's a sad situation, Madam Deputy Speaker. I believe the current uh, Speaker is a man of honour and he's done a great deal over recent years to restore the reputation of the Chair after a period that was a dark period for this House. However, even if he believes that the constitutional innovation that he's introducing today is a good one, today at this moment was not the time to change the rules. You've heard from the chair of the select committee there is a serious question about the order here and the constitutional propriety of which order these questions are being taken, a question being put by the SNP too. And can I suggest that if you're not prepared to suspend the House, that we at least defer the divisions that are supposed to be happening this evening until we can resolve these issues... I get the feeling we haven't heard the last of this issue. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Looking outside Scotland for now, although this again might impact on us, we have Stormont, the Northern Irish Assembly is up and running again, and they have, for the first time, a Sinn Féin First Minister. So that's somebody who believes in a reunited Ireland. This was her opening bit from her opening speech. It's First Minister Michelle O'Neill. Today opens the door to a future, a shared future. I am honoured to stand here as First Minister. 
We mark a moment of equality and a moment of progress, a new opportunity to work and to grow together. Confident in that wherever we come from, whatever our aspirations are, we can and we must build our future together. I'm really delighted to see every MLA back in this chamber today, and I welcome the fact that the DUP have decided to re-enter the democratic institutions and that the outcome of last year's Assembly election is now being respected. And I also look forward to a meeting of the North-South Ministerial Council shortly. The partial and coalition that is being formed here today by the parties must now dedicate itself to delivering an ambitious agenda for change. I wish all incoming ministers well, and I pledge to work with you all and to collaborate with you all. The public are now relying on each of us to act in their best interests, to serve our whole community with good faith. We must make Parashurin work because collectively we are all charged with leading and delivering for our people. In common cause, we must work to make life better for workers, for families and communities, to create hope and opportunity. We must be respectful of each other. The days of second-class citizenship are long gone, and today confirms that they will never come back. As an Irish Republican, I pledge cooperation and genuine honest effort with all those colleagues of a British, of a unionist tradition who cherish the Union. This is an assembly for all, Catholic, Protestant and dissenter. Despite our different outlooks and our different views in the future constitutional position, the public rightly demand that we, com- that we work together and that we deliver together, and also that we must build trust and confidence in our ability to collectively do that. And that will require courage, it will require ambition, not just from those of us that are elected, but also from the public. And if we all can invest in this, and the more of us do that, then the better chance it has to succeed. I thought that was very positive, and it's that sort of hopefulness that starts, you know, the good intentions and uh, everybody saying the right thing. You'll hear a contrast when we look at the way discourse is taking place in Holyrood just now. As you can be magnanimous when you've just been sworn in as First Minister. But she is saying all the right things, and if they follow through, then they can work together for the good of Ireland. I mean, the difference with Sinn Féin is that um, they don't take their seats at Westminster because they just say, we want nothing to do with it, it's nothing to do with us, which does give them, it frees them up, it gives them a lot of time to deal with Irish issues. And it's a constant kind of question that, that gets asked of the SNP, you know, how come you don't take that view? And, and it was Stephen Flynn who was interviewed, in fact, he's Friday, next Friday's podcast, explains why he doesn't think that's the right thing to do. But I don't know, it kind of, it makes them look as if they're serious, I think. It's kind of tough. You can see the point of view, which is that because we are currently actively in a state of sort of shaking the chains and going, hey, we're looking to get away from you. That kind of draws their attention to us in a way that sometimes you maybe would need to defend yourself publicly in their space, kind of in just the way that you want to keep them honest. Ireland, I think, at least for the time being, has been sort of quietly doing whatever they're doing by themselves and hasn't really been ruffling feathers in the same way. So obviously they're not expecting the entirety of Westminster to maybe spin an entire thing against them and go, ah, well, no, you guys can't do various things because reasons we said. And that's a good point, actually, yes. And they maybe don't perceive them as much of, as, as much of a threat to the union as they see the Scottish government as a threat to the union. So therefore, it's worth keeping an eye on the situation because if, as you say, the twin Sinn Féins might lead to a unified Ireland then all of a sudden they are shaking the chains. Yeah. And so if you then suddenly see UK government, as it often does, just rising up and going, wait a minute, what's this? <laughs> then, yeah, that'd be interesting. It will. And you're right. They can do. They can say anything they like in Westminster because they're not there to, to defend against it. Still on the theme of Ireland, though, and, and the, the different approach, contrast that with Scotland, the Irish Times podcast, Inside Politics, which is a, a podcast I listen to regularly, I really enjoy it. Their political editor, Mark Hennessy, described the initiative that the Irish Times is taking to try and provide a space 
where you can actually have respectful, reasonable discussion as opposed to the tribal insult hurling that we see, unfortunately, throughout Scotland. We're calling it Common Ground, uh, which is a title that uh, was the subject of long deliberation because almost any title that you could think of for a project like this would end up offending somebody. And we're trying to bring people into a place where it's a source of rational, sober, serious, unbiased, impartial information about the issues that could play a significant part in all of our lives in the years ahead. We've seen uh, the the way in which uh, these sort of identity debates uh, become become poisonous, most particularly in Brexit uh, in 2016. And we've seen what the damage uh, that can be caused uh, by all of that. So we think that there's a, a great deal of work that we're already doing, but that there's more we can do in terms of exploring the whole issue of identity and relationships, most especially on the island of Ireland, but also in terms of the east-west relationship between both Dublin and London and Belfast and London, and also issues in uh, Britain itself that could impact on us if we see them through the prism uh, of ourselves, and most especially you know, a resurgence of the Scottish independence debate, perhaps uh, at some point in the future. Um, or the way in which English devolution could work. And if it were, if English devolution were to happen, for instance, that would have a downstream effect at a later point on the makeup of a Westminster government. And all of the kind of structures that we've had in politics in uh, many Western societies, all the things that we've taken for granted for so many decades, you can't really be certain about anything anymore. So, you know, there's no point ever saying that a British government wouldn't do X. We can no longer be certain about what a British government uh, of uh, a EU we don't rec- we don't even uh, are not able to predict will say in the future. Obviously, he's, he's right that changes in uh, Scotland could well impact on what happens in Ireland in the same way as I think it was going to work the other way around. Particularly if they get a border poll or they move towards reunification, that kind of ignites our interest in independence in Scotland and also Wales. Yeah, it could be the spark that lights the powder keg. But I quite like that approach, though, and it's interesting that it's a newspaper that's providing a common ground. Again, the Irish Times is an Irish newspaper. You know, we don't have any Scottish newspaper that could take that role because they're so polarised. It couldn't be the national, because no unionist would, would agree with that, and it certainly couldn't be the, the other rags that call themselves newspapers in Scotland. So I don't know how or where we would do that, but that kind of brings you back to so what about a constitutional convention that's the one thing that everybody on all the certainly all the different parts of the independence movement that's the one thing that everybody seems to have a general agreement that there should be and still looking beyond scotland there was a very very successful workshop run by yes for eu the campaign group which we covered and you, you can watch the video of the workshop it was our movie's eye episode for for february we encourage you to watch it Yes, we'll put the link below. It's definitely well worth watching the whole thing. But two little clips I'm going to take from out there. Two great speakers at the workshop, SNP MEP Heather Anderson, who is going to give us, first of all, a glimpse of how Scotland is viewed from Europe. I know that we get used to thinking of ourselves as complete basket cases and that we're incapable of doing anything. And we're told this every day. And when you go to Europe, you're suddenly confronted with all these people who think Scotland is amazing, who think we're entirely competent, who think we're capable of doing astonishing things and working collaboratively and have a very high regard for us. And you come back to Scotland and say, I really wish you could see yourselves as other people see you. I remember we had, you know, Hamza had gone to the New York Climate Week and at that particular week, I can't remember what the scale of the attack on Scotland and our competence was, but he came back and he said, it's amazing, in New York, they think Scotland's astounding, they think we're a world leader, we think we've got really strong values. And you come back here, and we're incapable, you know, of running a corner shop, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's just that thing about the warmth in Europe was phenomenal. Um, people were very, very, very clear that Scotland's position was different, so they hadn't understood it before, and then they got introduced to the Brexiteers, and they realised that was an English nationalism project on steroids, so they completely differentiated Scotland from that point. Um, and I was certainly given lots of cards for when we come back. So I keep saying, you know, I had four days in Europe, but hopefully it was just the first four days, not the last four days. 
that's quite encouraging, isn't it? I mean, you, the, the constant onslaught of negativity that's that's poured on Scotland by the Scottish Tories and Scottish Labour, who can only seem to make their case by making us feel like we're all rubbish. It is interesting that that's not how we're viewed outside, isn't it? Yeah, the more damning thing is that it's been going on so long now that a lot of people have just internalised it. And so it just becomes self-reinforcing, unfortunately. Yeah, and confidence is a huge um, thing that's required. I mean, I was filling in a, one of the ScotGov consultations this morning, actually, on local democracy. And they were asking questions about, you know, what kind of decisions do you think your local community could be taking and what would they need to do? Quite an interesting wee consultation. There was one question was, what resources would the community need to be able to take on a decision-making role? And I thought, well, apart from the obvious money and probably some support to get going, the thing that we really would need is the confidence that we could do it because that's what gets knocked out of us by the constant, oh, you can't do this, everything's crap narrative. It makes you feel as if you can't actually do anything. So if you look at the the local councils and things in uh, Denmark, it's one we always look to, or Norway, These small councils are deciding for themselves they're going to put in a district heating system or pairing up with a local community and and chipping in on the cost of a community nurse or whatever it was. But, I mean, imagine what it would take for some of our communities to do that. Although I do think the development trusts are a good starting point. To hear more of that would be good. Moving on to the second clip that's come from that workshop, Kirsty Hughes, who we have featured regularly because she's such an expert on Europe and the EU, And here she's explaining something that I just don't think we hear enough about, which is the association agreement that candidate countries get before they join the EU. A lot of people are talking about EFTA, EEA. What do you think about that? I've always said that's misleading. If you want to be a candidate to join the EU, and if you apply, as you could, on day one of independence, then you follow the path that the EU says its candidates should follow. And the EU expects its candidates to have a trade agreement with it called an association agreement because it's, as we've discussed, it's a a much broader thing than just, just trade. So the European economic area is an alternative to being in the EU. It's not a a transition path. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing to be very clear about, because some people aren't, is that if you join EFTA, the European free trade area, in order to join the European economic area, as that's the only route if you're not an EU member state, you cannot also join the EU's customs union. Because if you're in EFTA, you have to try and join the bilateral trade agreements that EFTA already has with a number of countries. That's a condition of joining. Obviously, you're you're also, you're not at the table. You don't have, therefore, you're not in all the meetings. So you have a a tiny voice, but you don't have the voice you'd have as a member state. You don't have a vote. Um, And what we see since the EEA was founded in 1995, apart from the four founding members then, no other state has tried to join it. They've all wanted, despite the barriers, to join the EU. So if you look at the Western Balkans, you know, these are countries that that obviously were mired in war and conflict in the 1990s and have faced a lot of economic and political problems all the way through to today, but not one of them has said, oh, we're going to go and join Norway in the EEA. So, you, you know, you really have to ask, what, why not? You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Right, the next um, little group of clips, it's a bit indulgent really, but it's three occasions this month when the UK government have been shown up for idiots. And we'll start with the, in my opinion, totally misnamed James Cleverly. Now Scotland must house more asylum seekers, that's according to the Home Secretary, James Cleverley. He's written to the First Minister claiming that Scotland currently houses eight asylum seekers for every 10,000 people. That's half the number in England. He's also asked the Scottish Government to rapidly increase asylum accommodation north of the border, suggesting some could stay on a cruise ship in Edinburgh. Well, Peter William Walsh is from the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. Good morning to you, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Um, What do you make of this letter? Are the figures correct? Um, They are, um, but it's uh, helpful, I think, to take a broader view. So 
the Home Secretary criticises the Scottish Government for not taking enough asylum seekers. So asylum seekers are those who reach the UK under their own steam, sometimes arriving without authorisation, such as by small boat, and then they claim asylum on British shores. So this excludes Afghans, it excludes Ukrainians. And if we limit our analysis just to asylum seekers, it is true that Scotland hosts about half the number per capita that England does. However, we also know that Scotland hosts a lot of Ukrainians, 26,000 compared with 100,000 in England, but England has 10 times the population. So per capita, Scotland hosts about two and a half times more Ukrainians per capita than England. And so if we look overall at all the categories of displaced people that are hosted, so that's Ukrainians, Afghans and asylum seekers, what we find is quite interesting. England hosts four people per 1,000 of its resident population and Scotland six. So per capita, overall, Scotland hosts 50% more than England. Interesting. I think by interesting, what she meant was, damn, <laughs> foiled again. <laughs> I think she was leading up for another Scotland bad story then. And, and the next one, this has actually got nothing to do with Scotland, but again, it just is too good to miss. This is UK Minister Laura Trott being asked questions by, I think his name's Ivan Davis. You know, the, the, the flack that Scotland gets over its budget. Well, what if this was what our budget minister said? What is puzzling me is how you can be even talking about tax cuts when a central pledge is getting debt down and debt is going up. So the central pledge is one of our fiscal rules, which is that debt needs to be falling over the five-year fiscal forecast as a percentage of GDP, which, which it is. No, it's uh, higher in five years than now. Not as a percentage of GDP. Yeah, yeah no, it's higher. It's going up. It's, it's lower in the fifth year relative to the fourth year. So it goes down at the end of the projection. But in five years... I think it's higher in, at the end of the protest. Yeah, 23.4, 89% of GDP. 28.9, it's 93% of GDP. Debt goes up. It falls at the end of five years a little yes. bit. But that, that doesn't mean debt is coming down. That means debt is going up. It's higher. It's higher in five years than now. It's falling as a, well, as a percentage of GDP. Is no, there, it's higher as a percentage of GDP. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think well, this is really it's... basic. I'm looking at the latest OBR table. Public sector net debt, ex-Bank of England, 28 9, 92.8%, 23.4, 89%. So it's up in five years. Now, I'm amazed that you don't know that debt is rising, but you're no, the one who's planning... Of GDP, I, I'm looking at 100... the percentage of GDP. Uh, this is... I think I need to have the figures. I, I've got different figures, which I just... which. Uh, so I think we just need to... OK, yeah. let's just suppose if debt yeah. is higher on the OBR forecast in five years than now... You couldn't possibly be cutting taxes while your pledge is that debt should be falling. The point is that we have our fiscal rules and within those we have an amount of headroom. So we will only do things that are fiscally responsible and sit within our fiscal rules. It's a really, really big point this, isn't it? And one of us has obviously got it wrong. I think I'm looking at the right table and I think I'm looking at the right line. And it's possible that the figures will all change. But at the moment it looks to me like debt is higher in five years than it is now. And you're still talking about tax cuts. And I'm just wondering how you do that if you're a pledging well, debt falling is one of your key, as a key five pledges. Percentage of GDP over the five year forecast. Yes, and so, I'm, I'm looking so we at would the always. Percentage of GDP yeah, line, that's the only relevant one. I am. Um, so I think that the. Uh, we've always said that we will only do things within our fiscal rules and where it is affordable for us to do so. So, yes, we want to cut taxes. We believe that drives growth. But we will only do it if it sits within our fiscal rules. Laura Trott. Interesting conversation. We should probably both go and look at the books, make sure we haven't made a mistake, but obviously... I mean, for something as, as immense as deciding to cut the tax rate across the UK, to base it on debt going down when debt is actually going up and not know the difference, it's astonishing. It was an automaton. It was, yeah. <laughs> well, no, this is what I say when you say that. And then when presented with the fact that that was still erroneous, it's... <laughs> like watching a robot malfunction. <laughs> and yet, then when the point comes around again, it's the same canned response, which is met with the same counter, which is again met with... <laughs> so, yeah, oh no, don't worry, I've got my robotic programming for the thing that I think you're going to say, and it doesn't work, and it's terrible. <laughs> uh.
And then the third clip, just on our um, having a laugh at the expense of the opposition, uh, Alex Salmon was at the Scottish Affairs Committee this week. Now, the subject that the committee was examining and what all the questioning should have been on was intergovernmental relations. So the reason Alex Salmond was there was because they were asking about what were relations between Westminster and Edinburgh like when you were First Minister and they, they were then going to compare and see how, how things got worse or better. But Douglas Ross couldn't resist trying to have a go as ever. Douglas. I'm not surprised Mr Salmond doesn't want to talk about the ferries because obviously that has been uh, a serious issue throughout his time in government but and subsequent no, governments. Not, not but I do, want government. to, I do want to focus on education then because Scotland's PISA rankings dropped in reading, maths and science from 2007 to 2014 throughout your time in office and drug deaths increased from 2007 to 2014. They've increased even further since then. Mm. Is that the type of delivery you believe is competent government? Well, I, I could go through... A, a, I mean, I keep seeing a, a list of various things that the government which I was in charge of took forward because they're still being repeated today. But rather than you and I bandy it about, Douglas, uh, surely the record of my government in office was tested in the 2011 election where for the first and only time in devolution history and the proportional system... Uh, the government was elected with an absolute majority in a PR system. So rather my judgment or your judgment, that was the judgment of the people at that stage, having seen the record of an SNP administration for the very period that Alan asked me about and the very period that Baron Fultz was commenting on. I know why Mr Brown asked you that, but I'm just wondering, what's your reflections on the number of people who died in Scotland as a result of drug misuse during your time as First Minister? Is that something you regret? I, I think it's appalling. The area of drug misuse is a huge social issue. I welcome the fact that there's change in approach and uh, engagement with it. At that time, when I was in office, the deaths from alcohol abuse were greater than the deaths from drug abuse. They crossed in a curve uh, afterwards, and we were extremely focused on that as a major social issue. Uh, The drug policy... You know, I've been in, involved in since Michael Forsyth launched his war on drugs in 1997, was it? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not certain. I mean, the whole range of things, Douglas, that we, we haven't got to, to grips with, which are, are, are not superficial things, they're profound things. But there's no administration over that period of time can claim credit for, uh, for solving the extreme difficulty that Scotland has with drug abuse. Scotland's international reputation for excellence and excellence in education, it it did fall under your time as First Minister. But but the international reputation for excellence in education would also look at university rankings and college rankings, which rose very considerably. And I think, incidentally, in terms of the amount of opportunity that youngsters in Scotland had to take part in that, had a significant advance from the abolition of any form of tuition fee, which gives Scottish students a huge advantage over elsewhere. But look, I'm very happy. Look, I'll debate with you the record of the SNP government between 2007 to 2014 till the cows come home. Just finally on that point. This this committee, I assumed was interested in the subject matter for which it was called. Exactly. But, you know, look, look I, I, I mean, I've, I've been known occasionally, and your place has now, Douglas, to wander off into other subjects, but please, on you go. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just coming in on the back of Mr Brown, who was asking, and you're very happy to answer the question when it was put positive. No, no, so just, can, I ask, can I just ask, very can happy, I just ask, very Mr. Happy Salmon, to Mr Salmon, any of your order, questions, order. this is not helpful to well, people who are listening well, to these proceedings, indeed. so we please conduct a much more orderly. Douglas, lastly. I'm just wondering, and, and you speak about university education, but I presume you respect and acknowledge the PISA rankings, and therefore what is your... Uh, view on uh, maths, reading and science. Scotland falling down the international rankings during your time in office. It was a downward trajectory for well, 2007-2014. Firstly, I, I deprecate those who don't acknowledge the successes of Scottish education. Uh, we should be able to acknowledge failings as well, but I mean, Scottish education is not, uh, as you describe it very often in your public statements, Scottish education has an exceptional 
advance for, for many, many young people in Scotland. And the proof of that, of course, is if you look at the destinations of youngsters in Scotland in terms of work... Not just look at the PISA rankings that I'm asking about. Or, well, I, I know I'm, I'm answering your, your question about education, Douglas. Uh, that has risen progressively and successively, and we should be pleased at that. Why is it so difficult for you to some about PISA rankings? still to, to travel in a range of areas. But, uh, you know, Douglas... Across the, the range of things that the government did between 2007-2014, uh, I think public in Scotland were pretty satisfied with the overall performance. Just Let's don't want to answer about the bad okay, bits. Right, I think we've exhausted yeah. that line of questioning. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Just playground-level nonsense from Douglas Rowe. It's, it's embarrassing listening to, to him. Yeah, it's not good. I think Pete Wishart probably could have stepped in when he was clearly nothing to do with the committee that was being... He was just uh, taking the opportunity for a kicking. That's the thing, yeah, for something completely unrelated. He was just trying to, as he often does in the actual parliament, score goals based on data points he's brought up. Yeah. And that sort of clickbait fairies tag, I mean, and there's Alex Summer there, it wasn't, wasn't even part of my government, it was nothing to do with me. And if you thought that was bad, there was a whole load of new ministers being appointed in the into the Scottish government. And the reason was Michael Matheson had stepped down. Secondly, because Eleanor Whittam had stepped down. So there was a reshuffling of responsibilities and two new ministers brought on board, including one of whom, Cocab Stewart, who was the first woman of colour to have a position in the Scottish government. It's a sort of formality that they, they propose to Parliament and Parliament's supposed to welcome them. And it's an opportunity just to be civil and nice and positive and welcoming and wish people well. And at the same time, Donald Cameron from the Scottish Tories, List MP, he's been given a lordship. So there's a new Scottish Tory MP. And just look at the difference between the way that the First Minister welcomes the Scottish Tory and the churlish response that he gets, particularly from Craig Hoy, who is just a classless lowlife as far as I can see. Thank you, uh, Presiding Officer. Before I do speak to my motion, can I first of all welcome Tim Eagle to the Scottish Parliament. Uh, we will have lots of political uh, differences of that, there's simply no doubt, but can I genuinely wish uh, him well? I don't think there's any greater honour than being able to represent your community in this nation's parliament. So I wish you all the very best uh, in the role that you take up. <laughs> Similarly, let me also pay tribute to Donald Cameron, MSP, who, again, for all of our political differences, I always thought was very considered, uh, very thoughtful, quite often, not always, but quite often non-partisan as well. Traits that I would suggest are very much needed in the Scotland office, yeah. uh, presiding uh, officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, w I wish to pay uh, Donald Cameron tribute uh, for always, uh, or, or very often, uh, working very constructively uh, with uh, the Scottish uh, Government, and I wish uh, him well. Look forward to engaging with him. And I now call on Craig Hoy. Thank you, uh, Presiding Officer, and can I uh, echo the First Minister's welcome to uh, my newest uh, colleague, uh, Tim Eagle, uh, here in Parliament today, and also to uh, pay tribute to uh, Donald Cameron. He was a fine parliamentarian in this place, and I'm sure that he will be a fine minister uh, in the Scotland office. Presiding Officer, this is a reshuffle that the First Minister did not want to make, a reshuffle brought about by the actions of Michael Matheson, someone that Hamza Yusuf believed to be a man of integrity, a man who had to sack himself because the First Minister was too weak to do so. This winter, Michael Matheson should have been saving our NHS, but he spent it instead trying to save his own career. Whether misleading the media or mismanaging our health service, SNP ministers have repeatedly failed the accountability test. Presiding officer, Mr Matheson leaves government without a shred of integrity. But having failed to dismiss him, Hamza Youssef is left without a shred of credibility. For the First Minister, this reshuffle was a missed opportunity. A missed opportunity to reset his failing leadership. A missed opportunity to regain control of the agenda. A missed opportunity to kick, a missed opportunity to kick the Greens into touch. And he ducked it because the green tail continues to wag the SNP dog. Let us hear Mr Hoy. And regardless of how far and, has, and how fast she falls, this is still a government which cannot escape the long shadow cast by Nicola Sturgeon. 
And while there is no place in his government for Kate Forbes, her close ally, Jim Fairley, takes up a rural post. The First Minister is reworking an old proverb. He is keeping his friends close, but the friends of his enemies even closer. So I think you'll agree that was absolute lack of any class from Craig Hoy. And Jackie Bailey wasn't much better. Um, on behalf of the Scottish Labour Party, I would also like to welcome Jim Fairley and Calcub Stewart to their appointments as ministers for the first time, and to Fiona Hislop, who is the SNP's very own comeback queen. Before turning to each of the members in turn, let me make a few general observations. Because these new ministers do have a hard task ahead of them. They have to wrestle with poor budget decisions in their portfolios. They have to wrestle with keeping their Green Party colleagues on side, which I know Jim Fairley has views about, um, and with ensuring their devices have the correct data packages applied when they go on holiday, because roaming charges, or more accurately, the cover-up of them, is why we are here today. But I would also like to welcome Fiona Hislop back to the Scottish Government in her role as Cabinet Secretary for Transport. She was doing the same job as a minister and is clearly being promoted because she knows where the bodies are buried with the ferry fiasco and the lack of duelling of the A9. Members here, as long as I have been, will know that Ms Hislop has worn many hats under each of the SNP's First Ministers, so she will doubtlessly bring a wealth of knowledge to the brief. In the Cabinet, then demoted by both former SNP First Ministers, Fiona Hislop has survived them all. And it was down to Gillian Mackay of the Scottish Greens to show them how it's done. Thanks, Presiding Officer. Could I also welcome Tim Eagle to the Chamber, and I sincerely hope his jokes are better than Craig Hoy's. <laughs> I want to begin, Presiding Officer, by thanking those who are leaving their positions in government for all their work. I've found both Eleanor Whittam and Michael Matheson to be constructive and have engaged well with me on a variety of issues. I'm very much looking forward to working with both Neil Gray in his new role as Cabinet Secretary for Health and Christina McKelvey as the new Minister for Alcohol and Drugs Policy. I know, I know how fierce they both are in their approach to their portfolios. There are many challenges to deal with, and I'm sure they will both take the opportunity and the, the opportunity to be both open and collaborative as their predecessors have. My party are hugely pleased to see the return of transport to a Cabinet Secretary position and congratulate Fiona Hislop on her return to Cabinet. My colleagues are looking forward to continuing to work with her on cutting car miles, improving rail and bus services and improving connectivity across the country. I also want to congratulate Mary McAllen on her expanded portfolio, joining up the economy and Net Zero we hope will open all the opportunities of a green economy. Finally, to the two new ministers, Jim Fairley and Cocab Stewart. Congratulations to you both on your first appointment in government. I know my colleagues are looking forward to working with both of you. And I think, presiding officer, it is worth noting the significance of Cocab Stewart's appointment in making her the first woman of colour to enter government, making not just parliament, but government, better reflect Scotland as a whole. Presiding officer, can I start with uh, what I thought was the best contribution, uh, Gillian Mackay's. Uh, it was thoughtful, it was considered, uh, and I thought was rose really to the occasion. I have to say, I always, and I have sat through many of these uh, contributions before uh, over the years, and I always find it genuinely sad that uh, politicians are unable to rise to the occasion, no matter what the, the, the occasion is. I mean, this is an important day, particularly for those that are entering government. Uh, for the first time and for literally five minutes uh, all you have to do really is rise uh, to the occasion and Craig Hoy singularly failed to do that. No wonder we heard, no wonder, no wonder presenting officer, we heard cries of bring back Jackson, bring back Jackson and uh, I fully endorse uh, those cries. Though uh, I, I do get it, planning officer, Craig Hoy uh, really has uh, no hope of ministerial office uh, unless he uh, donates to the Tory party. He might well become a lord and then of course be brought back into the squalid office. Who knows, uh, that, might, that might well uh, happen uh, to him. Humza, whilst he's calling out Craig Hoy, he then took the opportunity to have a little go back. Now I kind of get why and he's right that Craig didn't. He completely failed to rise to the occasion but I don't know. It, it's just playground level politics. 
You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Yeah, we've just heard Laura Trott completely mangling the, the UK financial budget and clearly not understanding it at all. This was in a debate on the Scottish budget, and this is Ross Greer. And I think he is a, a really, really clear speaker. And this is part of his speech. Uh, Francis Azuska, who's the chief executive of Nature Scott, was at the Finance Committee a few weeks ago and said, I quote, I see in the budget a shift towards recognising the long-term challenges of climate change. Presiding officer, I mentioned last week, contrary to what's said about our party, there are lots of things that the Scottish Greens want to see grow. We want more high-quality, lasting jobs in green industries, preferably in Scottish-owned businesses, even more preferably businesses owned by their workers as cooperatives. But we're proud to be part of a government that's delivering that kind of growth. At the end of last year, we saw the Fraser of Allender report showing that in 2021 alone, we went from 27,000 to 42,000 jobs in green energy. And this budget includes £67 million for the offshore wind supply chain, doubling down on one of those key industries. We can't prioritise everything. I do think the Scottish Government needs to be more focused in its economic priorities and strategy. And that is exactly one of the sectors that we can prioritise with confidence that it will result in a very positive return. I'm proud that green tax policy will mean that in the coming year there's one and a half billion pounds of additional spending available that wouldn't otherwise have been the case. I'm proud that we are redistributing wealth in Scotland from those who have the most to those who need it the most. And I'm stunned by the Labour Party's hostility to that redistribution of wealth. This year alone, the Scottish Government is lifting 90,000 children out of poverty. This budget will lift more children out of poverty next year. I'll come back to the Labour Party in a moment. I'm sure Mr Johnson will want to respond to that. We have put a billion pounds more for social security in this budget. And yes, those on the highest incomes, the top 5%, will be paying more. But good luck to those in opposition parties who are going to go door to door telling the other 95% that you wanted to cut their public services to protect the incomes of those at the very top. We need to be honest. If we want a fairer society, then we need to pay for it. And the opposition have demonstrated again this afternoon, not just fantasy economics, but fantasy mathematics. The numbers just don't add up. I'll take Mr Johnson's intervention at this point. Okay, if we'll have like to be it. brief. I'm very grateful. Johnson. That a marginal tax rate for those in the middle of 60%, which is higher than those on 70, 80 or £90,000, is the absolute inverse of progressive taxation. Ross I'm glad Mr Johnson brought that up because for a start it's not the middle. We know that uh, middle average income, average household income in Scotland is around the £28,000 mark, which Michael Mara was referencing as if people on about £28,000 are paying a huge amount more. If you're on £28,000, you are paying pennies more in tax in Scotland and in return you get a range of public services that are not available elsewhere in the UK. I accept that we can't put all our eggs in the basket of income tax though. We can't create new national taxes because of the Scotland Act. That's why this government's delivering a visitor levy, cruise ship levy, carbon emission land tax, Dublin council tax on holiday homes, an infrastructure levy and potentially a public health levy to empower local government. I clearly don't agree. My party doesn't agree with the merits of the council tax uh, freeze, though I am uh, pleased that it is adequately funded. It's not what the Greens would have chosen. We don't believe it can happen again. But I'm certainly not going to be voting down a budget with £4.7 billion for climate and nature and £6 billion for social security because I'm unhappy with one policy. The government has clearly demonstrated its values here. The contrast couldn't be clearer with a dysfunctional Tory government and a Labour opposition who, in the words of Sky News last week, are putting protecting bankers' bonuses ahead of lifting children out of poverty. This is a government, this is a budget that puts people and planet first, and that's why the Greens are proud to vote for it this afternoon. You're right, it was more positive. I wish the, the SNP would do more of this. You know, He takes a criticism that they lob frequently about you know, high Scotland being the highest tax area. And actually, it's a progressive taxing. So the top percent, yes, they're paying some more tax. But the idea that you should cut services for everybody in order that those at the very top 5% get to keep more of their huge salaries, I mean, it's just ridiculous when you put it like that. Why, why would you? You know, inequality is one of the, the real issues that work against us be having a well-being economy, for example. And it goes towards more of that cooperative spirit we're sort of striving for when you can, in fact, say, I do have a criticism of something that somebody's doing, but I agree with this part of it. This part of it is good. Yeah, and I mean, that's grown up 
politics, you're able to disagree over things and discuss them, but you're not throwing the baby out with bathwater. Yeah, you can acknowledge successes and then also say, ah, but here's where I think it's falling down. You know? Yeah, yeah. Right, so still on the um, the topic of contrasting the Hollywood discourses, we went on a, an indie podcast as day out, Marlene, Marion and myself, and we went to Holyrood, we got the tour, we were in the debating chamber, which was fantastic, and afterwards we had a little chat about our reflections. This is a little clip of the conversation we had, and if you want to see, there's a short video of our tour on our YouTube channel. So I, I think I feel the, sort of the weight of things now, the fact that we're not making progress, we are more adversarial, not because of any particular one individual, but because of <clears> the, <throat> the system <throat> seems to be forcing ourselves yeah. into this. Yeah. Maybe we're losing sight of those, you know, those aspirations that it was set up with and the wording on the mace. Yeah. It's powerful, powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet it's abused it's, daily in the parliament. What's yeah. on the yeah. mace is... Compassion, justice, integrity, integrity, integrity. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. So compassion, wisdom, wisdom. integrity. integrity. Mm. What that did remind me of was, um, partly anyway, was the principles in which Jean Freeman mm. set up the Scottish um, benefit system. Yeah. You know, so mm. it's, it's it's a compassion, the integrity, the dignity. That's the other. Fairness, dignity, and respect. Yeah. Dignity yeah. and respect, and. Mm. and um, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's just fantastic. And yeah. it seems to me that she she definitely was an exponent yeah. of that, wasn't she? Yeah. She lived the words. We need to keep in mind the way forward, yeah. don't we? And those words, those four words on the maze yeah. actually provide yeah. that. Mm. I mean, it's got me thinking, I think I'm going to... I mean, I know my MSP's just walked past, but mm-hmm. um, my... And he's not bad, actually. But, um, you know, you could just write to your MPs and say, listen, we've just been, just seen that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you mm-hmm. exemplify that? Mm-hmm. If you please, please exemplify mm-hmm. that when you say something. We're not asking you to agree, of course. Yeah. No one's going to agree with mm-hmm. all the way around. Mm-hmm. But, but please channel, channel the energy those. of those yeah. words. Yeah, exactly. And it will maybe just, if you interact with somebody in a positive way with those words in your yeah. for, forefront of your mind, yeah. surely that's going to have an impact on the other person. Yeah. And if you're reduced to the lowest of the low, which is what the opposition parties mm. seem to be intent on. Um, as somebody in, uh, spoke to recently said, if they go low, you go high. It's like Keep they're that. disrespecting the whole place, okay. isn't it? That they're almost trying to negate it and make it, no, no, the only real ones, yeah. Westminster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fact that there's three male party leaders, two of whom are routinely breaking those aspirations for behaviour because there is something aggressive and macho about the current discourse which is nasty I don't don't want to hear that in my parliament and you can bet your bottom dollar the populace don't want to hear it either for good or bad reasons but certainly the case that people have got disenchanted with politics politicians what's the point of voting Mm -hmm. you know and I kind of hear that I go look hang on of course there's a point Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Know, that that kind of atmosphere that you mm-hmm. do get in that chamber sometimes it doesn't this doesn't help. Mm-hmm. It just kind of adds into it. Mm-hmm. Adds everything that's out there on social media mm-hmm. anyway, and then that gets mm-hmm. added in. Yeah. So there's little enough. So yes, the mace with those those four words in it. That maybe I don't know if there's space to add another one. You could maybe chisel in that they they need to be polite in the chamber or something. Or no, I think it it just comes down yeah to the insults. It's essentially. You can disagree with something, you can even vehemently disagree with something, but you can do that essentially without resorting to just chiding bullying. (laughs) I know, yeah, it's that playing the man, not the ball thing, Mm. if I understand that sporting metaphor correctly. And speaking of (laughs) Westminster, let's head over there and just a, a couple of clips. First one is Stephen Flynn's questions at PMQs and but just a scene setting in terms of disgraceful parliamentary behaviour, Sunak had laughingly joked about betting £1,000 that he would manage to get some refugees on a flight to Rwanda. Would you think of how that must make those people feel as humans, you know, that they're the subject of humour and and bets by a billionaire prime minister, you know? Mr Speaker, the public are used to the Tories gambling on the lives of others. Boris Johnson, he did it with public health. 
during the pandemic. His immediate successor, she did it with household finances. So not to be outdone, the Prime Minister on Monday this week accepted a crude bet regarding the lives of asylum seekers. In doing so, he demeaned them as individuals and he degraded the office that he currently holds. So can I ask him, will he apologise? Mr Speaker, we may have a principal disagreement on this. I believe and we believe that if someone comes to this country illegally, they shouldn't be able to stay, they should be removed, and that's why we're committed to our Rwanda scheme. Stephen Flynn. So, Speaker, as ever, the Prime Minister does himself no favours. You know, the following day, he he did even he did something even worse, which was the um, awful jibe he made at the expense of transgender murder victim, whose mother was in the gallery at the time. Just shows you money can't buy you compassion or decency. But yeah, it kind of goes to the theme of what we've been saying throughout this, and what you've identified as the theme of it. But it's that. They seem to be clinging to a level of theatricality. It's become tradition that I include Deirdre Brock's question to Penny Mordaunt because she delivers it so pleasantly. And this week we had a particularly good example, which uh, you might enjoy. Uh, Mr Speaker, last week I asked the leader about the cost of the Tories' secret and highly sensitive State of the Union report to Cabinet. Hansard records that not one word of her answer... Uh, reflected my question. Not one syllable. Instead, she read out to the chamber a script about, a video script, in fact, about bingo and uh, a joke about monkeys. The week before, I asked the leader about the Electoral Commission's concerns over Tory voter ID plans. Again, not one word in hindsight about Tory voter ID, not a peep. Instead, she read her prepared script attacking the SNP. In fact, Hansard reveals that week after week, not only do my questions go unanswered, they're completely ignored. And week after week, we get a clickbait video for her personal YouTube channel. Surely, behaviour that demeans her office and disrespects this House. She's here to answer questions from members. So I returned to that State of the Union report in July 2020 to Cabinet with its aim of undermining the Scottish Government and the Scottish Independence cause, a Tory top priority at the height of the pandemic, apparently. It came to light last week, and no wonder her Government wanted to keep it under wraps. It contains more grim news for any remaining supporters of the Union. So my questions again, how much did it cost taxpayers and what was its purpose? What strategy was it asking the Cabinet to endorse? Do the Union Strategy and Operations Committees still exist? And while she's at it, I'd be really pleased to know the details of the team of highly professional attack dogs, as described by one journalist, who were employed at around that time in an attempt to counter independent support. Now, unlike the Prime Minister, I'm not a betting woman, Mr Speaker, but I would wager a £1,000 bet I wouldn't get answers to those today either. So I will be writing to the leader with all the questions she's ignored just this year, for starters. My question today, though, really just needs a simple yes or no. And then I challenge her to sit back down and resist the video script, and it is this. Will she, at the very least, attempt to find answers to my questions when she receives them in writing, as she refuses to here? And can we have a debate on the role and function of the Leader of the House? Penny Morden is absolutely shameless. In, um, I mean, I refuse to give her any airspace, but she just says the most ridiculous, slanderous, insulting barbs against the whole of Scotland, not just political. When it comes to the, the general election, I am going to be staying up specially to, to watch her lose her seat because I'm really going to enjoy that one. And the final clip is one that I came across on Twitter and it was it was by Support the NHS in England. They posed the question, who's better for the economy, ordinary people or billionaires? So here it is. Today we're going to find out who's better for the economy, ordinary people or billionaires. So here we have five people who all lost money because of cuts in austerity. We're going to give them that money back in the form of a pay rise, pension, disability support, a student grant and a small business loan. And now we're going to go to our billionaire and give him £20,000 in the form of a tax cut. So what are they going to do with their money? Susan has used her money to pay for family shopping. Tom gets some repairs done on his car. 
everyone we gave money to is spending it in the local community. And the people who get that money go on to spend it too. All this money changing hands creates economic growth. Businesses take in more profits and they can hire more people. And they too go on to spend their wages. With every transaction, the government takes in more revenue. And they can use this to build new roads, hospitals and schools. And they can also hire more teachers, firefighters and police officers. Not only will these people spend the money that they earn, but they'll also make our country a better place to live in, attracting more investments and tourism. Hi. So, how have you used the extra cash to stimulate the economy? Pardon? You know, the £20,000 tax cut we gave you. Have you hired any new staff or invested in local business? I completely forgot about it. In fact, I might still have it. So, what are you going to do with it? Send it to the Cayman Islands with the rest, I guess. So you won't mind if we take that back then? Security? So as you can see, getting money into the hands of ordinary people does a lot more for the economy than giving tax cuts to billionaires. That's it for this month's Bits and Pieces. We'll be back again next Friday with another podcast. See you then. Bye for now. You've been listening to Bits and Pieces. Shit, what happened there?